Hey, 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 you cool spirits and sprites. I'm your ghost host, Bloody Mary. And you're listening to Ouija Board Debate. Now, for those who are first-time listeners, welcome, welcome. Prepare yourself to be haunted for years to come by the knowledge about to be imparted on your mortal brain. For those new to our program, Ouija Board Debates works like this. Every week, we call two deceased debaters up using our Ouija Board and get them to duke it out over any subject area right here live on our radio show. We've had everyone from Machiavelli to Michelangelo, Confucius to Kissinger, Elvis to T.S. Eliot, and I could go on. What's more is we get the topics and debate questions directly from you, the listeners, because here on Ouija Board Debates, we value democracy. Speaking of democracy, it's time to reveal this week's topic. The Role of Parties in Congress By producer Casper the Friendly Ghost says our lines have been ringing off the hook about all things politics since the general election in November. And with the countdown to this ugly Senate runoff debate between Democrats and Republicans, those party questions specifically about the United States Congress have been rolling in. So I'm sure you all are dying to know who we're going to summon. Well, I'll give you a hint. They're funky. They're fatherly. And former presidents. Give it up for our first and fourth presidents, George Washington and James Madison. Hello, hello. Thank you for having us on. Yes, very happy to be here, Mary. The pleasure is all mine. Now, I'm sure you both know how this works, but for those who might need a little bit in the dark, we'll have three rounds of questions. Each will consist of you answering one of the audience questions. You will both take turns answering first and second. Once the debate is complete, I, Bloody Mary, your host, will decide who wins. President Washington will be arguing a generally negative view of parties in Congress, whereas President Madison will be approaching parties with a generally favorable or neutral outlook, because we're good political scientists and want a well-rounded debate. So, gentlemen, without further ado, let's begin round one. Round one. Fight! Our first question comes from Dr. Jesse Croissant of Reedsville, Pennsylvania. Wait, wait. I'm hearing from my producer that it's Crossin. Apologies, Dr. Crossin. Well, thank you for your question. It reads, do you believe that parties and partisan considerations more broadly play too large, too small, or generally proper role in the contemporary Congress? President Washington will send this one your way. Thank you, Mary. Right off the bat, I have to say that I personally think parties have become far too powerful. As you all know, I have the utmost respect for my colleague James. However, in my life, I took a much more adversarial position towards parties. Look no further than my farewell address. I went to great lengths to discuss the baneful effect of the spirit of party. Parties in our time were almost synonymous with the concept of faction. Mr. Madison defined faction as a number of citizens, whether amounting to a majority or minority of the whole, who are united and actuated by some common impulse of passion or of interest, adverse to the rights of other citizens or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community. Parties are simply a vehicle for faction mobilization. When I wrote my farewell address, I envisioned parties creating despotic leaders. These leaders would rise to power and crush the people's rights and liberties in an effort to advance themselves and their party or faction. The despots would dominate Congress and the public and every branch of government. And I have been watching you all closely during the 221 years I've spent in the afterlife. 
because to me, it's clear that partisan concerns dominate the modern Congress. My prediction of despotism wasn't entirely off. These modern parties, led by Democrats and Republicans, seem hell-bent on prioritizing their own party success at the expense of the people that they represent. I find that the best explanation of this contemporary despotism comes from Dr. Francis Lee's writing about insecure majorities. Parties are incentivized to ferociously fight for control. This is because, to quote Dr. Lee, Parties invest more effort in enterprises to promote their own party's image and undercut that of their opponent. These efforts at party image making often stand in the way of cross-party cooperation on legislation. That leaves the congressional responsibilities of both policy making and representation in the dust as congressmen, chained to parties, duke it out over institutional control. And the cost of runaway partisan politics on legislatures has been empirically illustrated. Dr. Jesse Crossan's work in this paper, Statement in the States, outlines exactly how state legislatures with stronger parties are more likely to experience gridlock. I just wish we had had this sort of insight when Madison and I were around. Fascinating. Who knew our own audience member Dr. Crossan would have something to say on this matter? I bet he was not expecting that name drop. President Madison, your response? Well, Mary, I've thought about this question for many years now, both in life and in death. My thoughts on factions are well known and widely publicized. Factions are unavoidable, I'm afraid. They're sewn into the nature of man. And this is a belief that George and I share. His points on the dangers of despotism are duly noted. But because factions themselves can never be eliminated, we can only hope to control it through institutional means. I think it's fair to argue that the very structure of Congress, which we designed all those years ago, has kept despotism in check quite effectively. Let's use the House as an example. The fact that the House is a majoritarian institution goes a long way to rein in the influence of minority faction control. This way, the unfavorable policy goals of the few people won't overwhelm the will of the many. And historically speaking, the fact that our nation has avoided despotic takeovers like that scene in Nazi Germany and others show that we, the framers, came up with a sound design. And you know, Mary, I would also argue that the era of modern partisan considerations have actually evolved to serve a productive and appropriate institutional role for parties in Congress. Institutionally, parties have proven an effective solution for overcoming the collective action dilemma within the legislature. Getting 435 members in the House and 100 members in the Senate to agree on any decision is not easy. But frankly, Congress was not designed to be easily navigated. Parties make it easier for members to work within the institutional features, and they overcome the collective action dilemmas through many different avenues, including building coalitions and articulating a common message. What a spirited first round. Gentlemen, thank you for your responses. Round two, fight. All right, moving on to round two. Our next question comes from a Dr. David Crockpot. Wait, wait, Crockett, there we go. Dr. Crockett asks, in addition to their roles in policymaking, do you believe that parties aid or hamper representation in our nation's top representative body? President Madison, this round will start with you. Well, Mary, as we already mentioned, parties are inevitable in any society. But I disagree with the idea that a society can't learn to live with the effects of parties. In fact, 
Regular elections serve as one such check against representatives at the mercy of parties. In this way, better representation is promoted by parties since voters are able to hold members accountable by voting them out if they step out of line. So constituents themselves actually hold considerable control over those who represent them. This idea is at the heart of a representative democracy. Since majority parties want to maintain their power, they will ensure that their members get re-elected. This often means having junior members hand off legislative responsibilities to the party leaders, which allows these junior members to focus on re-election efforts. Because they're no longer bogged down with activities of policymaking, they're able to be home in the districts, interacting with voters and learning about the issues that their constituents are most concerned about. Were it not for the ability and the influence of party leaders to toe the line of policymaking, these members wouldn't be able to touch base with their voters so effectively. Even when junior members focus their energy on re-election campaigns, this encourages healthy competition among the parties. This is specifically true for members from marginalized districts where their campaign strategies are more likely to lean into building personal connections with constituents. Parties also help streamline the campaign process for both candidates and voters during election seasons. They help fund the consolidation and distribution of information quite effectively to constituents. By looking at a candidate's party affiliation, voters know immediately what issues that candidate will prioritize and the positions they'll take on those issues. In this way, party identification offers a signal to voters for how they will be represented. President Washington, your response? I would like to ask you a question, James. Who exactly is getting more of these congressmen's time? From what I've seen, congressmen are not equally concerned about everyone in their district. This is because parties systematically prioritize representation of the privilege in our society and neglect marginalized groups. Take blue-collared workers as an example. Modern parties have taken campaign finance to a whole new level. You can't blame blue-collar workers from steering clear of multi-million dollar campaign expenditures. Most are just trying to make ends meet and can't afford the luxury of running for office themselves. These groups can't rely on those with privilege in office to always fight for their low-income or minority group concerns. With no seat at the table, they can't guarantee that their voices will be heard just by electing someone from privilege who claims to be on their side. After all, talk is cheap. But parties also hurt the ability for moderates to be represented as well. Under the current two-party system, moderates are discouraged from running. This is because they are not likely to feel that either party would be a best fit for their positions. Constituents are also more likely to be represented by a member with a more extreme ideology on either the left or the right. As soon as voters throw out an extreme member from one party, their next representative is likely going to be an extreme from the other party. At the end of the day, partisan concerns clearly undermine important, descriptive, and ideological characteristics of the nation. Fantastic, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Round three. Thank you both for two thoughtful rounds of a debate. Now it looks like it's time for the third and final. This one comes to you from Dr. John Hermit. And I got it right. Well, it looks like third time's a charm. Anyways, he asks... Is there an era of party power in Congress that you believe more appropriate for our present moment? President Washington, take it away. This is a very interesting question indeed. 
To begin, I would like to point out characteristics of the quote present moment that should be taken into consideration. Over the past few months, it seems as if the world has been thrown into a complete chaos with the onset of COVID-19 and the subsequent economic crisis. It reminds me a lot of the kinds of things I would observe when I would drop in and take a peek at the world of the living during the 1930s through the 1980s. I want to remind you that in those years when the American people called for the most social and economic progress, the Democratic Party was able to adapt and overcome. For example, the Great Depression's crippled economy and racial tension are two issues we see in the past and present. What helped guide the country through such tumultuous times were one, the wide majority held by the Democrats, and two, the adherence to procedures encouraging cooperation. This kept polarization at bay during the 50-year Democratic reign. Notably, polarization's dramatic rise from 1980 to the present has been tracked using DW nominate scores. As Mann and Ornstein point out, the Republican takeover in 1995 was not the first movement towards the state of polarization we find ourselves in today. Congress showed signs of undue party influence once the Democratic Party leaders, towards the end of their dominance, quote, restored to ad hoc arrangements on the House floor, restrictive rules that limited debate and amendment on the House floor, and behemoth omnibus legislative packet packages that short-circuited the normal process, limited transparency, and rendered the majority less accountable. What do you have to say to that, President Madison? I have to point out some problems with this era, George. Systemic inequality and despotic activity reigned supreme during the 50-year Democratic hold on Congress. For decades, these Democrats in Congress turned a blind eye as Southern states continued to discriminate against and disenfranchise Black voters. Furthermore, stability does come at a price in our system of government. Congress was not designed so one voice could drown out the others. Turnover is fundamental to our democracy, yet it did not happen in this era. The Congress during the 1930s through the 1980s is precisely why we ought to encourage parties to check each other's authority and to prevent one from dominating the other in our nation's federal system. In fact, I would argue that each era in history since the founding of our nation has its own problems with polarization. No time period is without its partisan flaws. Even from early times, as Cornell scholar Cynthia Farina noted, quote, Federalists and Democratic Republicans experienced familiar patterns that included increased pol partisan polarization spreading over new dimensions of politics and policy and close electoral parity between the two parties. Furthermore, the progressive era also was also marred by similar social and economic change, resulting in increased partisan considerations. I would perhaps have preferred the Gilded Age if I had to pick a time period. There was a good deal of heterogeneity in the parties. On a theoretical level, this fits well with the conception of Congress as a place of diverse interest and ideas to play out. The less party dominance, at least in theory, the more opinions are expressed. But maybe a better question to ask ourselves is not what era should we time travel to, but rather what alterations can be made to the existing system. After all, congressional eras of the past come with their own very unique political and societal landscapes. Unrealistically, making the Speaker of the House's election a bipartisan pursuit could catalyze greater cooperation between Democrats and Republicans. But this is more of a pipe dream than something that could actually have any chance of happening. A more realistic option might include establishing term limits to take away the intoxicating electoral incentives plaguing congressional members.
And with that, we conclude our third and final round of debate. Gentlemen, it has been a pleasure to conjure up your spirits and have this productive dialogue about such an important issue as partisanship in the United States Congress. I will now send you back from where you came from and make my decision about who won this debate. Mary, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having us on the show. Thanks, Mary. It was great to see you again, George, and be on the show. Gentlemen, it was my honor. Now away you go, and tell Benjamin Franklin I say hello. He keeps dodging our emails. Well, spirits and sprites, we've reached the part of the program where I must determine a winner from today's debate. We've heard what our speakers have had to say about the roles of parties in the modern U.S. Congress, so now we must ask, are parties actually a detriment to Congress? Honestly, there seem to be pros and cons to the presence of parties. Partisan concerns are not inherently bad for the nation. President Madison brought up many good points in his time on our program. Parties represent the consolidation of individual beliefs under one organized platform. Their well-established campaign networks and fundraising abilities help to streamline the campaign process for both candidates and voters, signaling to voters the candidate's position on important issues. But perhaps most importantly, President Madison reminded us that even though parties are not a feature written into the Constitution, the presence of multiple parties serves as a check on their despotic tendencies, which is so dangerous to democracy. But we've also heard today that parties can become overwhelmingly fixated on gaining or maintaining majoritarian control through constant pursuit of re-election. It's clear that the contemporary parties have developed an almost primal urge to not only survive, but empower the opposition at the expense of fulfilling their congressional duties. President Washington spoke at length about how the institution of the modern parties discourages adequate representation from groups like blue-collar workers and even moderates. So it's worth considering how the current system could be altered to be more inclusive. It's clear there's substantial work to be done. But who wins? President Washington in the party negative view or President Madison in the party neutral or favorable view? Well, I've, got, I've had some time to think and I've reached my conclusion. Can I get a drum roll, please? Neither view wins. I know, I know, it's not a real answer, but I think there's no real way of making a determination about parties on such a binary scale like good or bad. In reality, parties are neither good nor bad. Rather, the electoral landscape they exist in moves parties closer or further from factionistic tendencies. The electoral landscape consists of institutions and forces that influence elections. For example, slimmer majorities seen in the 20th and 21st centuries have dramatically changed how parties behave inside and outside of Congress. Increased homogeneity and relentless efforts to degrade the other are two such behaviors. So, to our U.S. listeners, this may sound like a grim assessment of your current partisan climate, but we all know parties are dynamic entities. Things can adapt and improve. I think President Madison was onto something when he spoke of instituting term limits, but I have a proposal of my own. Why not attempt to create one or more permanent minority groups? The new party lines can be drawn along dimensions like far right, moderate right, moderate left, far left, etc. But like all things in American politics, this reform is easier said than done. This would solve problems and pressing issues like forced homogeneity, within parties, 24-7 mudslinging, underrepresentation of marginalized groups, and abusive power by party leaders. And with that, we'll have to wrap up today's program. 
Tune in next week for a heated debate about whether the Michigan Wolverines should fire coach Jim Harbaugh. Thank you, and stay spooky.